Well, hiya, it's great to be with you. And uh, if you're watching online, we're glad you're here. We know you're here. We value that you're here as well. Um, but it's lovely to be with you today. I want to ask you, um, have you ever been in a situation that you didn't like? Stupid question, isn't it? Of course you have. <laughs> of course you have. When I was six years old, I loved ballet. And so my parents very kindly, after a bit of pestering, probably quite a lot of pestering, they painted my whole bedroom pink and they stenciled, you know the stencils that you can do all the way around the room for a child's bedroom? They stenciled ballet dancers all the way around the room. And uh, six months after they did that, guess what I hated? <laughs> ballet. <laughs> guess what I hated even more? Pink. <laughs> okay? But my parents had put a lot of time and energy into this bedroom. They'd spent the money on the paint. So I had to live with a pink bedroom with ballet dancers around it for quite some time. But I thought, it's okay. It's okay. Because when I'm an adult, I will be able to choose the color of my walls. And I will be able to have situations exactly as I like it. And that's what adulthood is, isn't it? It's having everything exactly the way that we like it. No. Yeah. <laughs> I've just moved into a new house. I was very excited. Paint the walls, I thought. Paint the walls exactly as I like them. At the moment, they're that lovely magnolia you get in rented properties. I've got a tenancy agreement now that tells me I am forbidden from painting the color of the walls. So even as an adult, you know, you find yourself in a situation that you just don't like, but you feel stuck with. And don't we all have situations like that? Now, that's a really trivial, stupid example, but don't we all find ourselves in situations in life where we don't like the color of the walls? We don't like the situation that we're in. We don't like the job we're in anymore or the friendship group that we're in or the dynamics of that group anymore or the financial situation that we're in or the relational situation that we've got ourselves in in our marriage or in our dating relationships or the fitness situation that we're in. We all find ourselves in situations where we don't like the situation as it is. We don't like the color of the walls. So, what do we do when we find ourselves in a situation that you don't like? What do we do? Well, we try to change the colour of the walls. We try to paint the colour of the walls. We try to change the situation. We try to improve our circumstances, right? Try to improve our circumstances. That's usually the thing we try first, but it's often not as simple as a new coat of paint, is it? Now, here's the thing. We all have situations that we don't like. And so we can make our lives an endless pursuit of trying to improve and update our circumstances, can't we? Because there's an endless variation, endless combinations of circumstances that we might try to arrange in our lives so that things are the way that we like them, so that our situation matches what we want it to match. And uh, because of this, because we all have this desire, the truth is that there's money to be made and influence to be gained of teaching you how to improve your circumstances. That's a bit of a cynical comment. I'm quite a cynical person. But that's the truth, isn't it? Everyone's after it. Everyone wants to improve their circumstances, which means there's a market for teaching you how to improve your circumstances. And that market we call the self-help industry, right? At the moment, these are the Amazon bestsellers in the self-help industry. The Courage to be Disliked, Atomic Habits, How to Talk to Anyone, Think like a monk, be your future self now, and how to keep house while drowning. Don't know which one of those um, intrigues you the most. But um, there are a few things that characterize books like these, right? Improve your situation, improve your circumstances is usually the kind of philosophy that they're working under. 
They start with asking, okay, what's getting in your way? What's getting in your way of you having your situation that you like? And then they think, okay, what do you need to overcome that? Do you need resources? Do you need money? Do you need more friends? Do you need more confidence? Do you need more peace? So try to find some sort of resource that you might need in order to overcome the things that you're getting in your way. And ultimately, they cast a vision of who do you ultimately want to become? And where do you ultimately want to end up? Now, this can be helpful. For example, that one of them up there is uh, how to talk to anyone. I'd quite like to read that book. I've found things like this helpful, where someone gives you a process and a method for working through some of the things that you wish that you could be a bit better at. And you may have benefited from a book like that. You may benefit from a speaker or an Instagram follow or someone that helps you work through things like that. But we also have to acknowledge the limitations of this approach, don't we? And particularly that not all circumstances can be improved. Now, that's not what a self-help book will tell you, but certainly there are circumstances and situations we find ourselves in that can't be improved, aren't they? Right? And we, sometimes we find ourselves in a circumstance like that. You may find yourself in a circumstance like that right now. Or you have done, or you certainly will do find yourself in a situation that you can't do very much about. Because it's not all in our control. It's not all in our control. Now, this is the point, and interestingly, these books do this. This is the point where we might bring faith and spirituality and religion, whatever sort of religion, into the mix. Because there's this category of things that are outside of our control, and so we start mixing in some ideas about, oh, well, you know, there's the universe. The, there's, the universe is doing some stuff as well in my life, and maybe the universe is for me, maybe the universe is against me, or karma is working, or God is, God's plan is there's this ultimate thing that's working that, in the bit that I can't control to ultimately make it something that's still going to go according to plan, or that's what I attribute my confusion about my circumstances towards. And sometimes I think we get to thinking that maybe we can bend these things into our favor. And often these uh, books and self-help gurus will try and talk to you about, well, how can you get the universe and how can you get the stars to work in your favor? And sometimes if you're a Christian, you think about God in that way. How do I get God to work in my favor? How do I get God to intervene in my circumstances and set them up according to what I want? But the thing is, that's just another way of seeking to control what you can't control, isn't it? And where does that lead? Where does it lead to seek to control what you can't control? Well, you know it because you've probably experienced it. It leads to doubt. Doubt in God. Why isn't he doing the thing that I wanted him to do? Or doubt in whatever system of belief that you've put your faith in. Or doubt in yourself. Why can't I achieve the things that this book tells me I should be able to achieve? It leads to disappointment. It leads, maybe to disillusionment, because now I'm thinking, well, maybe none of this is going to work. Maybe there's no point. Maybe my circumstances will never improve. And it leads to dislike, doesn't it? Dislike of other people sometimes, because they've got it better than us. Dislike of the people who do seem to be succeeding in the places where we're failing. Dislike of ourselves. Dislike of God. Dislike of life. That's where seeking to control what we can't control leads us. Which leads us with this question. 
What hope is there that my situation can be improved when my situation is such that it's outside of my control? Now, this is not a new question. This is a question that humanity has been wrestling with for, well, forever. And in fact, this is the question that people were asking at the period of time when Jesus stepped onto the pages of history. How, what hope is there that our situation can be improved? Specifically, we're going to meet this morning a guy called Peter. Now, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He apprenticed under Jesus. He lived in the area that we would know as modern-day Israel-Palestine, and he lived in occupied territory. Now, I'm imagining if you go to Ukraine and you ask somebody in occupied territory how the self-help industry is doing there, they would say, not well. Because if you live in occupied territory, you know that your circumstances are outside of your control. There is no doubt about that. And this is the situation that Peter finds himself in. He is a Jew living in an area that should be Jewish land, a Jewish nation, but they're occupied by the Roman Empire. Their life is one of occupation. And they're waiting for God to do something about this circumstance, which is beyond their control. Now, Peter eventually would believe that Jesus is his savior. But the critical thing is, he would come to believe that Jesus was his savior without experiencing a change to the circumstance which he would have grown up praying would change. Specifically, without experiencing a change to the fact that his nation was under Roman occupation. And Peter writes to a group of followers of Jesus who are in a pretty bad situation themselves. He writes to a group, he writes a letter that circulates around the Mediterranean basin, around areas where the message about Jesus has reached. So Peter's followed Jesus, he's witnessed all of Jesus' teaching, he's witnessed the death and resurrection, and he and others have set about spreading this news around the nation, around the Roman Empire. And uh, this has reached all sorts of different people in all sorts of different contexts. But people find, as they join this group of Jesus followers, their circumstances don't necessarily get better. In fact, for many of them, their circumstances got worse. We've talked a bit about this earlier in the series. You can um, watch it back if you've missed it, catch up on YouTube, where we talked about that actually comfort was not the first deal that a lot of Jesus followers got, that often it came with suffering and persecution because the way that they were setting into the way of Jesus wasn't like the way of the world. And so their previous family groups and their previous businesses and the jobs that they'd relied on and the security and the status that they'd relied on before, often they found themselves without that as they started to follow Jesus. And Peter specifically writes a letter to groups of people who are in these circumstances, who are suffering, who are feeling ostracized and abandoned by the people they used to know, by the situations that used to hold them up. And he wants to give them hope. They're asking the question, how will our situation be improved? And this is why Peter writes a letter which we know as First Peter, and it's called First Peter because there are two of them. And the second one's called Second Peter. <laughs> so, so how does Peter go about helping them to figure out how their situation can be improved? Well, he starts by saying this to them. So set aside, he says, all ill will. That is, is willing something bad for somebody else. All deceit, 
all pretending something that it's not. All hypocrisy, all pretending you're something that you're not. And envy, envying that somebody else has got it better than you, wishing actually secretly that their thing would go badly so you feel better about your own thing. And all bad-mouthing others, knocking them down in public, saying, well, you know, they've got it good, but did you know about? It's a funny thing for Peter to introduce to a bunch of people who are going, no, no, I just want to know how my situation can be better, please. And he's saying, no, no, I want you to focus on this. Certainly don't do anything to try to make your situation better than somebody else's at the expense of somebody else. Certainly don't try that way. And the reason that Peter does this is because Peter's not talking to a collection of individuals. He's talking to a community. And he wants them to start thinking as a collective, not just how your situation can be improved, but how things can be better for the community. And kind of an organizing principle for Peter's letter and Peter's thoughts for the whole of 1 Peter is this. Live for the we, not for the me. Live for the we, not for the me. Now, this is quite a radical departure from how people would have lived back then, that actually, in order to improve your status and in order to improve your situation, you might need to climb over some other people on the way up to the top. And that's not that different today, is it? That actually, oftentimes, we're encouraged maybe to put our own interests above others at the expense of somebody else. But Peter's ramping up to tell his readers why it is that this is so critical, why it is that they should live for the we, not for the me. And it's going to have to do with a change of situation, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Peter goes on, he says, like newborn babies, crave pure, unadulterated, spiritual milk. Now, I believe you can still buy this at Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> no. Come on, that was a good joke. That didn't get as much of a laugh. Everyone online is just cracking up. Uh, <laughs> crave pure, unadulterated spiritual milk. Now, this might be the point, if you're not familiar with the Bible, where you're like, well, this is why I don't read the Bible. It's like, what, what, what on earth is that? What's it talking about? Well, actually, milk was quite common vernacular at the time, quite common vocabulary for talking about kind of the teaching and the wisdom that might come from the gods, that might come from uh, Jewish teaching, might come from the rabbis. So milk is kind of this language about the nourishment you get from teaching. And the spiritual word that's used there is kind of related to speech and a message. So probably what Peter is saying is, crave the pure version of the word that you've received about Jesus, of the teaching you've received about Jesus. In other words, don't think you've graduated beyond needing what you first heard and understood about Jesus. Go back to being the newborn babies. Now, this might sound like a bit of a regression, like, hang on, Peter, that sounds like going backwards. We're trying to go forwards here. But Peter says, well, in order that you might grow towards salvation, if you have tasted of the Lord's kindness. So it's going to get you somewhere, he says. So overall, so far, he said, put aside selfish ambition, leverage your desires that you used to have towards getting ahead, and instead leverage that desire towards craving more and more understanding of the message and the teaching that you've heard about Jesus. Now, keep tracking with me because now Peter's going to unpack why it is that he thinks this is so critical and why it's going to lead to a change of their situation. And you keep coming to him, he says. Jesus is who he's speaking about. 
the living stone. And Peter's about to introduce a metaphor about buildings and about temples and about a stone which is placed at the cornerstone of a building in order to keep it true and in order to keep it strong. You keep coming to him, the living stone. The reason he says living is because he's not talking about Jesus as a memory or Jesus as a monument, but Jesus as someone who's resurrected and who's still living amongst them, who was rejected by people. Peter's referring to the trial and the execution of Jesus, which he was there to witness. He saw Peter get rejected by people. Jesus get rejected by people, sorry. In fact, Peter at one point did the rejecting. And uh, come and talk to me afterwards if you don't know what I'm talking about, because that's a really interesting story. He was rejected by people, examined, tried, and then set aside, executed. Nah, he's no good. We're not interested. But, Peter says, at that moment when he was being rejected by people, he was chosen by God and precious to God. In other words, whilst people were rejecting him, God had selected him for something. At the moment when his circumstances were worst, Peter is trying to convey, his placement was divine. His placement was selected by God. God was doing something at the moment when his circumstances were at their very worst. And this is where we're going to shift our language today. Because Peter is trying to shift something in how his readers think about their situation. Here's the language shift that we're going to do. There are two ways of talking about situation, right? When we use that word, you can talk about your situation in terms of the situation I am in, my circumstances, my con the conditions of my life. But you might also talk about your situation in terms of where somebody is situated where somebody is located. And it's this that Peter's trying to shift them to think about now. He's trying to think about not what were Jesus's circumstances, but where Jesus is situated in what God is doing in the world. And Peter's making this case that Jesus is situated as the cornerstone, the cornerstone is something that keeps a building true and makes sure that the angles are right in the building and that the foundation is strong. The cornerstone of something that God is building in the world, which begs the question, well, what is it that God is building on Jesus? So Peter goes on, and you also, you all, he's talking to the collective, as living stones, so like Jesus, you're being identified with Jesus, you're playing a similar role to Jesus in this, are being built up into a spiritual house, he says. Now, what's a spiritual house? It's language that should remind them of the place where God is made known in the world, a place where God lives, where God dwells. So he's saying you as a community, as a collective, are being built up into a spiritual house. Now, when he uses the language of you, you all, and he's talking to a community of believers in Jesus, then if you're a believer in Jesus, and if you're a part of the community who believes in Jesus, then this applies to you too, what he's saying here. He says, you all are situated on Christ. You're built on him. 
You're with Christ. You're part of the same building. He's the cornerstone. You're living stones. He's a living stone. Together with one another, you're part of the same building. You're being built up together, set next to one another. And the crazy thing, God is situating himself with you. God is living amongst you. God is placing himself amongst you. That is a crazy thing to say. So, oh, skip one. Go back. So, do you mind clicking back for me? Sorry. Your situation improves when your situation moves, as in when where you are situated moves. Not when your circumstances change, but when where you are situated moves specifically and who you are situated alongside. And Peter is saying, now you are situated with Jesus. You are situated on Jesus. You are situated together with one another. And God has situated himself with you. God is working in you. If you want to find where God is in the world, you go and find a community that is built on Jesus and is gathering around the teaching of Jesus. And that's where God will make himself known in the world. If anybody wants to find where God is, they need to go find a community who believes and trusts and is building their life on Jesus. That's what Paul Peter is saying, your situation improves when where you are situated and who you are situated with moves. What better reality would there be to participate in than that? And that's what Peter wants to get his readers to see. But how do they do it? How do they situate themselves there? Well, Peter goes on to teach them how to do this. He says, You are being built up to be a spiritual house that is where God lives, a place where God lives, a holy priesthood. What do priests do? They help people to know God. They help people to worship God. They help people to understand God. They help people to experience God. And he says, you collectively are functioning as a priesthood. You've got a role. You've got a job now. And your collective job is to help people know God and experience God and worship God. You're being built up into a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, pleasing to God through Jesus. What are spiritual sacrifices? There's that word again, spiritual. It might seem a little vague. Well, it's clear as we read the rest of the letter and the sorts of sacrifices that Peter is keen for people to make are when you give your way away for the sake of somebody else, the way that Jesus did. So saying spiritual sacrifices are simply when you give your way away for the sake of somebody else, when you love others as Jesus taught you to love, and when you love God the way that Jesus loved God, to give your way away for the sake of others and for the sake of God. That's a spiritual sacrifice. In other words, he's teaching them, live for the we, not the me. Live for the we, not the me. Make decisions according to what's best for we, not according to what's best for me. Sacrifice your way for the we, not the me. Why do we need to do this? Well, because this is what Jesus modeled for the world. This is what Jesus did. 
he sacrificed himself for the we, for the thing that God was building in the world, which is we, which is us, which is the community where God makes his presence known in the world and where God is active. This is what Jesus modeled in the world. It's, may, it's the way that God makes himself evident in the world. But you might be thinking, well, I'm not sure what I believe about those things. I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus yet. I just want you to consider for a moment what living for the we, not for the me, what a difference that would make anyway, how that's a better route anyway, because presumably whatever circumstances you want to find yourself in in your life, other people are included in your vision of that, aren't they? That you want good relationships or good friendships or good partnerships. Living for the we, not for the me, is a better place to situate yourself. When you situate yourself with others rather than over and against others, that's a recipe for love. That's a recipe for healthy relationship. But the ultimate reason why it is that we should do this is that if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the cornerstone of what God is building in the world, then is there any viable alternative for where you are best situated? Is there any other viable alternative than to be part of what it is that God is building in the world? To take your place, the place that God has established for you, the place that God has set up for you in what he is doing in the world. And Peter's going to hammer this point home now. Because you might be wondering, well, how does this produce hope? How does this produce hope in my situation? But you, Peter says, you all, and you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are part of a community that believes in Jesus and is growing on Jesus, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You have a role. You have a job. A holy nation, God's special possession, he says. In other words, your circumstances aren't evidence of this. Your current situation might not give you evidence of this, but where God has situated you because of Jesus is proof of this. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See how your situation has changed, Peter says. How has your situation changed that you may now declare the praises of him who called you once you were situated in darkness, that is, away from God, away from the source of life. Now you are situated with him and he is situated with you into his wonderful light. Even though your circumstances do not look like light, you are situated with the source of life and light itself. And now you have a collective purpose to declare his praises to the world, Peter says. I love what he goes to next. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. In other words, you should never have gone together. That would never have worked under any other circumstances. But now you are the people of God. You've gone from being a me thing to a we thing. Once you had not received mercy, but now 
you have received mercy. Now today, we're celebrating the anniversary of the church, 143 years. This is the story of a church. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we've already talked about today, a church, the anniversary of a church, we don't celebrate a building, we don't celebrate a certain person or an individual, we don't celebrate a certain set of successes, we celebrate this, that once you were not a people, but now you are, once you had not received mercy, but now you have, and this is the best story a church could ever tell, isn't it? So that just leaves me with one final question as I wrap up. If that's the community that God is building in the world, if that is the thing that God is building in the world, is that the we that your life is about? And by that, I don't specifically mean, is your life about Holy Baptist Church? <laughs> I mean, is your life about the we, the community that God is building in the world where people find Jesus that's built on the teaching and the cornerstone of Jesus that declares who Jesus is and makes God known in the world. Is that the we that your life is about? Honest moment of reflection. You know, I could, I could answer this question. I'd say, yeah, I want it to be. And yeah, I'm working for the church, so people think that's the we that my life is about. But no, not every minute of every day. That's not the we that my life is about. But if not, what is it? Where would I be better situated than to be part of what God is building in the world to bring people to Jesus? Where would I better situate myself? What better situation is there than that? And Where better would you want to be situated than in what God is building in the world to bring people to Jesus, their saviour? Why is he a saviour? Not because he takes people out of their difficult circumstances, but because he takes people who are situated away from God and situates them as children of God with him. And then God situates himself with any group of people who bond themselves around that truth, around that teaching. There is no better situation a person could find themselves in. And the good news is your circumstances don't have to be up to scratch for you to be situated right in the middle of all that God is doing in the world. So is that the we that your life is about? And if not, would you consider making it the purpose of your life? Would you consider situating yourself in the midst of that? and asking the question, how do I build more of my life in the middle of what God is building in the world? A community that loves him, that knows him, that takes him to the world, that knows Jesus, our cornerstone. We're gonna take a moment to um, look through some questions, and they're gonna come off on the screen, and this is a chance for you to reflect what that means for you, but also reflect on that, what that means for we. It's a we thing, not just a me thing. So uh, spend some time with, sorry, I can't click it. The 
Have you been trying to alter a situation which is proving difficult to change? Have you been living for a me or a we? Where in your life do you need to make it a we thing rather than a me thing? Did today's Bible passage describe where you are situated in relation to God and others differently from how you would describe that relationship? How does God's desire to make himself known in the world through his community, his church, pose a challenge to your current engagement with other followers of Jesus?